Our teaching from this morning will be from Romans chapter 2, verses 1 to 16. This is God's Word. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who, who, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, we're back in Romans this morning, and uh, if you've been tracking with us the last, really since the uh, early part of this year, we are in a series where we're... Uh, we're uh, alternating back and forth between Genesis, the book of Genesis, and the book of Romans. And um, first we looked at the first 11 chapters of Genesis and took a break. And now uh, we're going to look at the first, almost the first three full chapters of Romans. And if you're uh, unfamiliar with this book, it's a letter. We sort of, Christians fall into a bad habit all the time of using language that's familiar. We call it a book because it's part of this one big book. But it's really a letter that Paul wrote to a group of Christians in the city of Rome, to the church in Rome. And he had not yet visited this church, nor had he met them. And uh, it was written probably in AD 57, right really in the middle of his his ministry. And as we've uh, been seeing the last couple weeks, the, the central theme of this whole letter is God's good news for the whole world. And we began last week realizing and looking at that in order to really understand the good news, we have to accept the bad news. And that started about halfway through chapter 1 last week, where Paul gives us his diagnosis of the human condition. And uh, just to uh, review that real briefly, Paul makes several claims about our human condition Uh, And he's making these claims as true of all people everywhere throughout time. That all people know God. By virtue of being created in his image, everyone knows God. 
Because God has made it clear what he has made, through what he has made. His eternal power, his divine character has been clearly made known. But what happens is we suppress that truth. The truth about God that God has made known and made clear and everyone knows, we suppress it and instead exchange the truth about God for a lie. That's essentially what he was trying to lay out in the previous passage. And the question for us then is, if that's the human diagnosis, how do we respond to it? If that's what we're really like as human beings, how do we respond? Well, and we saw at the very end last week of chapter 1, there are essentially there are two responses, and the first one comes in verse 32. If you have a Bible, uh, you don't have to, but um, if you do, and you look just above chapter 2 in verse 32 of chapter 1, the first response describes those who practice all of these things that Paul calls human unrighteousness. And not only do they practice them, but they encourage others to do the same. Uh, in other words, there's consistency. It might be against what God has to say and against his design for us, but uh, at least they're consistent about it. They disobey God and they approve of everybody else that does the same. That's one response. But the second response we come to in our passage this morning, and it's the response of a double standard, uh, or as we might uh, title it, the response of a hypocrite. If you look here in in chapter 2, verse 1, You have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. There's a double standard. There is a judgment in view here that is not according to God's standard, but according to our standard that we come up with. And it has a very tricky uh, way of working itself out in our lives. It's a double standard that creates a false self-perception. It encourages and cultivates this perspective that says, I'm not as bad as these other people. Verse three, you who judge those who practice such things, yet you do them yourself. In other words, we hold other people to a higher standard than we would hold ourselves and let ourselves off the hook. In other words, we we hold on to our sin and our self-respect at the same time by pointing out other people's and cultivating a sense of superiority. So there's a false self-perception, but then there's false security. Verse 3 again, do you really think you will escape the judgment of God? And then there's a false view of grace. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Now, there's, a, there's this false self-perception, a false security and a false view of grace that this this attitude, this response to the human condition nurtures in us. And so what's, what's the, the remedy to this problem? 
we're going to see this morning that there are two, two points. There's God's kindness and God's judgment are the remedy to this problem. So first, let's look at God's kindness. If you look in verse 4, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Now, all week I was trying to think about how to describe or or try to picture for you what's happening in these first four verses. And and I I had to land on something. And I want to put this in front of you as a way to, to, to understand these first four verses. There are two ways in these first four verses of approaching your life. There are two ways. You can either approach your life horizontally. That you evaluate your life based on comparison to other people. Horizontally. Or you can evaluate and, and approach your life vertically that is in light of God's kindness to you so think about it like this first of all what's described in this first approach of of a horizontal approach to life is characterized if you look in verse 5 by a hard and impenitent heart it's self-deceived and in verse 5, it even leads to, to storing up God's wrath for the day of judgment, the day of wrath at the end of history. There is a horizontal way of living your life that only looks at other people and their moral behavior, their successes and their failures. And you compare yourself to those people. Now, the the difficulty here in this is that when Paul here says that you practice the same things, what are the things he's talking about? Well, what he's talking about are all of the things he listed in verses 24 to 20 to 31 in chapter 1 that range from such things like murder which is very outward and obvious to things that perhaps no one has ever even seen in you, but you know is there, like envy. It is the full range of human unrighteousness. Now, here's the difficulty. What Paul is saying here is that one way that we respond to this human condition is that we judge other people according to our own standards. So, for example, we might look at someone and say, wow, I have never murdered somebody. That's not as bad as envy. And, and therefore feel like, I will escape the judgment that that person will receive. Paul's whole point here is, that couldn't be further from the truth. Do not be deceived into thinking that you can escape the judgment of God simply because you think your morality is somehow less tainted or less at fault or less vulnerable or less broken than someone else. So there's living horizontally, but there's living vertically in light of the riches of God's kindness. 
Listen to this. These are two totally different ways of living your life. Living in light of God's kindness to you involves his patience, his forbearance. Why does this matter? Why does it matter for you to take the time to think about this and how you approach your life? Because here's the answer. It's because God's kindness is purposeful. It's meant to lead you to repentance. Now, I don't know how that word strikes you, repentance. My guess is that for most people, especially outside the church, but maybe even inside the church, repentance just has this very negative feel to it. it it's, it's almost a religious version of saying, no, stop that. But that's not at all what the Bible means by repentance. R- repentance is a good news word. It is a word of change, of hope, of new life. Very simply put, the word repentance in Scripture simply means turning. So here, when, when Paul says, do, do you presume on the riches of God's grace that his kindness is meant to lead you to turn? To turn from a course of life and action and living and believing that leads to death and destruction and despair to a life that leads to forgiveness and reconciliation and peace and joy and flourishing in keeping with God's loving purposes for you. Repentance is a good news word. And Paul stresses it here in verse 4 because one of the major symptoms of this attitude that's described in these first four verses is an attitude that really thinks of God's grace as cheap. It only conceives of God's kindness as saving you from something, not to something. But the biblical gospel is much better than just salvation from judgment. It is that, but it's much more than that. It's salvation to a whole new life, new privileges, a new status, a new family. It's a salvation to something, not just from something. Now, how does that happen? By building your life on God's kindness. Now, what is the picture of God's kindness? In the scriptures, the picture of God's kindness is the cross of Jesus. So here's, here's something, this is a take-home assignment for you. I want you to think this week, talk amongst friends or family members. Help me, ask, ask somebody in your life to help you to see God's kindness to you. How is God patient with you? How does the cross of Jesus demonstrate to me personally his long-suffering with me? his patience, his gentleness, his slowness to become angry. See what you come up with. You see, the reason why repentance here, that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, is actually very good news. It actually means it gives you freedom to be honest about yourself and at the very same time have hope. Another way to put it, 
The Christian gospel says God accepts you as you are. He doesn't require anything from you. He doesn't require you to clean yourself up. He accepts you as you are. But he will never leave you as you are. Do you hear that? He accepts you as you are. Naked, ashamed, exposed, guilty. But he can't leave you as you are. When grace and God's kindness breaks into your life, it will turn your life upside down. It has to. It's nothing but life from the dead. This is God's kindness. It's purposeful. When God's kindness begins to grip you more than your perspective of your own successes and failures and other people's successes and failures, change happens. God's kindness meant to lead us to repentance. But what about God's judgment? Look in verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Here what we're told is that God's judgment is righteous, that it's right, it's perfect, it's good in every aspect, that he never errs in his assessment and his calculation and his judgment. Now I also want you to notice, if you, if you were here last week, you might remember this, but remember we talked about how uh, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. The end of chapter 1 describes God's judgment and wrath as a present reality. Here in this passage, in verse 5, the day of wrath, when that comes, verse 16, on that day, God judges. God's judgment is future. It's both present and future. Now, what, what's, what does that tell us? Among a number of things that that would tell us, God is involved. He is attentive. He is paying attention. He will set things to right. Now, what that means is, he's always watching. He knows what's happening in your life and in this world. He is not indifferent. He is not asleep at the wheel. But we have yet to see God's right and righteous judgment set the world to right. But there will be a day when he does set the world to right. So I want you to see here that there are three dimensions of this judgment. And remember, why are we looking at this? All of this that Paul is giving us is addressed at this res- the response to the human condition of hypocrisy, of hardness of heart, of superiority, of a suppression of the truth that takes you further away from God and his gospel, not closer to it. So there's three dimensions here, three aspects of it. Look in verse 6. He will render to each one according to his works. 
God's judgment is according to works. Now, that may sound, I don't know, how that hits you. Uh, that may grate against you, may raise questions. What is, what is he talking about? Well, let's look. Verses 7 to 10 describe what Paul means by works here. And there are basically two categories of works. First of all, verse 7, those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Verse 8, this is the second category. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. In verse 9 and 10, build on that. Here's what we have. Verse 7 describes the person of faith. Now, that might not strike you right away, but that phrase there, by patience and well-doing, think persevering by faith. Or as Paul says in Galatians 5, this is faith working through love. Verse 7 is a picture of the fruit of faith in the life of of a man or a woman or a boy or a girl. And verse 8, those who are self-seeking, this is a picture of somebody who is building their own kingdom rather than in verse 7, a person whose deepest desire is to seek God's kingdom. These are contrasts. And in both cases, these works describe what we seek, what we do, and where we're going. Everything in your life has those ingredients. You're seeking something by doing something because you're trying to get somewhere. Now, this is, I think, an uncomfortable, but it's incredibly necessary to see that God's judgment is according to works. Why is that? Because you need to know what does God really think about you. It does you no good for God to sweep things under the rug. And in fact, the cross of Jesus is the proof that God judges according to works. That every single thing we've done, thought, said, finds its endpoint on the cross. God judges according to works, and this actually becomes the foundation of your confidence and your assurance. So it's according to works, but notice it's impartial. Verse 11, God shows no partiality. How does he show this? Here what we see is God, he he does not play favorites. Notice twice, We see here, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. In verse 10, we see the same thing in verse 9. The Jew first, also to the Greek. We come into verse 12, we're set up for it because he says, all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. What is he talking about here? First of all, law here is referring to the law of Moses. The law of God revealed on Mount Sinai to Moses and his people. Now, who does he have in mind when he says those who are without the law? That's Paul's way of describing a Gentile. 
all of human race, the human race, that is not Israel. That's not a part of his covenant people. And then when he says those under the law, that's Paul's way of describing God's covenant people, the Israelites. Similarly here in verse 13, when he says it's not the hearers of the law, but the doers of the law. Hearers of the law would be someone, is another way of describing God's people. Those who have his law, the law of Moses. But what's very interesting here, Paul is saying, my judgment, God's judgment is impartial because what matters is not whether you have it or you hear it, but if you do it. And that raises a very important question. Because on the one hand, it doesn't let off God's covenant people just because they have it, the law. The real question is, are you living it? But it raises the important question, what about Gentiles? If they don't have God's law, how can God hold them accountable? How can God hold us accountable? My guess is the vast majority of us in here are Gentile. Now, how does that work? Notice what he says. When the Gentiles, verse 14, who do not have the law, do by nature what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. How is that possible? Verse 15, because God has written the work of his law on their hearts. Remember earlier, when we we learned last week, God Everyone knows God. He's made it clear to them. Not only that, he has written his moral blueprint by virtue of creation on every human heart. This is definitely where we would understand as sort of in terms of Christian theology, why do some people who have no interest in Christianity or or religion for that matter still have moral outrage? at what they see in the world and live and act as if there really is a right and a wrong. This is where it comes from. Even though we suppress that moral blueprint, it's there and it bubbles up. It makes itself known in any number of ways, however haltingly and however unsuccessfully. Here's the point. God judges according to what you know. Paul is saying God's judgment is impartial. But here's the problem. When it says here, it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. That really is true. Doing the law is how we become righteous before God. But the problem is, We can't do that. So Paul writes later on, we'll see this in a few weeks, no one will be justified by works of the law since through the law comes knowledge of sin. How do you know that you can be justified before God with respect to his law? The only way you can know that is if you are in Christ He alone is justified before God 
with respect to God's moral requirements of what it means to be an image bearer of God. Now, that means we need to end on good news. So God's law, his judgment is, um, it's according to works, it's impartial, but it's also according to the gospel. Look at verse 16. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Think about this, what Paul's saying. God's judgment is part of the good news. Have you ever thought about that? That, you, In other words, you, you've not understood the judgment of God if it's not understood in light of the gospel, the good news about Jesus. Another way to think about it, God never comes to us and says, I'm going to judge you and that's it. God's judgment is meant to take us to Jesus on the cross where God demonstrates his judgment. Another way to think of it is that day of wrath that's mentioned here in the future has been brought into the present on the cross of Jesus. If you want to know about God's judgment, you have to look at the cross. There's no other place to look. This is what Paul means when he says, it is by Jesus Christ or through Jesus Christ. He is the one who bears this judgment. And he is the judge at the end of history. Think about that. To be in Jesus means at the end of history, when Jesus returns as the judge of the world, your Savior, who bore the judgment for you, will be your judge. Now that ought to fill you with shivers and joy and life and delight because it means the one who is born the judgment for you will be there to greet you. And he can't but welcome you into his family and call you brother and call you sister. But notice he also says, according to the gospel, it reaches to the very heart, to the secrets of men. Now, that might feel uncomfortable, but here's what you need to see. Why does God judge not just your actions, but your intentions, your motives, the secrets that you carve out room for in your heart that you don't want anybody to know? Do you know why? Because he wants you to be free. He wants you to be fully known He doesn't want you to live naked and ashamed, racked by guilt. He wants you to know that there is a love for sinners. And that means you. He doesn't want you to hide. He wants you to be free. God's judgment is according to the gospel by Jesus Christ. Now, what does this mean for you? Think of it like this. God's judgment is according to works. That means he's taught, we're here talking about Jesus' love and obedience. Ultimately, it's about what he has done. It's impartial. Even to the point where God did not spare his own son. 
And it's good news because there's kindness for the judgmental. There's hope for the hypocritical. Think about it like this as as we draw to a close here. God's kindness and his judgment come together on the cross. They're both true at the very same time. And Jesus is the one who embodies that kindness. And he's the one who exhausts that judgment to the Jew first and to the Gentile. That is, to anyone who would run to him and put all of their trust and faith in him. Let's ask him to help us to do that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we continue to make our way through this letter and come up against uh, who you are and your character, your kindness and your, your judgment, especially in contrast to our unkindness and our hypocrisy, we ask that um, you would help us to see your kindness in the cross, in, in Jesus, and that um, it would lead us to repentance, that you would change us, You would not let us persist living uh, horizontally, but you would call our attention vertically to the Lord Jesus seated at your right hand, our great shepherd and king. For it's in his name that we pray, amen.